0: Welcome to part two, where we finish the 2008 movie, The Other Boleyn Girl. A note about our rating scheme. Rachel and I give two ratings each A, a number out of five for what we felt about the quality of the film, regardless of accuracy to its sources. And B, a number out of five for the historical authenticity, based on the tone and genre of the movie, how seriously it expects us to take its treatment of the real life events and historical figures. That's a little more generous than. Was it historically accurate? Why give two ratings? Because some of the most accurate historical films are still soul-crushingly boring. Some of the most fabricated historical films still suffuse the soul with emotion. And some are just a lot of fun, yet still deserve credit. a brief plot summary of the final acts of the other Boleyn girl. Once again, anything I mention here will be discussed, so listener discretion advised, skip ahead at those sections. Part 2 Anne gives birth to a daughter, Princess Elizabeth to everyone's dismay You may have heard of this kid, she'll be fine Henry's wandering eye catches one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting, Jane Seymour. Anne loses her temper and what was left of Henry's love Anne believes with good reason she will be executed and her family lose everything if she can't give Henry a son. Out of desperation, she beseeches her brother George to impregnate her, but he can't go further than getting into bed with his sister. Unfortunately, his jealous, spiteful, unwanted wife Jane Parker, played by Juno Temple, spies what they're up to and informs their uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, who switches allegiances to the king. Avoiding further intrigues, Mary has left the palace for the promise of marriage to her friend William Stafford, played by Eddie Redmayne. He's been in love with Mary, and in the background of the movie, the entire time as one of the Boleyn family's servants or something. Stafford promises to help her raise her children in the countryside, the way Mary always wanted. In real life, Mary and Anne probably never saw each other again after this marriage, So everything to do with Mary from this point on is totally fictional to give her something to do in this film besides have a happy ending. Mary's bucolic bliss is interrupted by news of her brother and sister's arrest and trial for adultery, incest, and treason. King Henry divorces Anne and Princess Elizabeth is bumped down in status to Lady Elizabeth, Bastard, just like all her siblings. So Henry can marry Jane Seymour and make their hypothetical son his only legitimate heir. Mary doesn't make it back in time to witness her brother George's beheading, but begs an audience with her ex on behalf of her sister Anne. Henry doesn't understand why Mary wouldn't treat him for mercy for Anne when Anne offered her none in the past. Mary says her sister is, quote, one half of me, so Henry promises he won't harm any part of her. In the Tower of London, Anne begs Mary to look after Elizabeth and for her sister's forgiveness. The sisters believe the king will commute Anne's death sentence right up until Anne is about to kneel at the scaffold. That's when Mary receives a note from the king telling her she was foolhardy to come to him. Anne will die. Don't ever contact him again. Have a good life. All Henry is offered his former wife and Queen of England is a cleaner death by the sword instead of the axe. Mary strides back into the palace, seizes baby Elizabeth from Mary's mother, with no one trying to stop her a textual epilogue describing the sad fates of the other characters plays over sun-dappled shots of Mary happily raising her children and the future Queen of England, her niece, on the estate Mary Boleyn shared with her husband William Stafford for the rest of her life. In the novel, she is not that interested in her daughter Elizabeth, which is outrageous. Because she was known for being a very good, <laughs> attentive mother who wanted to keep Elizabeth with her all the time.
1: You know, it's interesting. I believe the same can be said about all of his wives except Catherine Howard. Mm-hmm. That Well, the English wives, the ones he knew before. Yeah. Um, I believe he'd known all of them for years before he actually married them. Or at least they were around. Like Jane Seymour had been at court forever. Yes. Um
0: That's another thing that the movie does is as early as the beginning of Mary Boleyn and Henry VIII's affair, they're already worried about the Seymour family and about Jane specifically. And I don't understand why they would include that because Jane became one of Anne Boleyn's ladies in waiting. If they thought for a second that the Seymours were a threat to them, that they were going to put their daughter in the way of the king. There's no way that Anne would let her join the household. It was very competitive position. There were lots of other ladies who were like, you know what? I will deal with this no Pope issue. I just want to have a good position at court. So there were plenty of other candidates that were not Jane Seymour. So I really don't like them having that be like a 10 year issue or even more of the Seymours being their rivals.
1: Yeah. Henry for all his faults, and he had all of them, <laughs> he did seem to really appreciate an intelligent woman. Mm-hmm. And low burn, he didn't, except for Catherine Howard, I don't think he really fell head over heels for anyone the first time he met them. Yeah, And even with Catherine Howard, it's not quite the same thing. Like, she had been around. She served Anna Cleves.
0: Yes. I think that one of the reasons why, and despite... She is one of those women who doesn't really help other women and you can't really expect that from the time period and her daughter is rather like that too. It's not as though women's rights became a thing in late 16th century England, but because she didn't suddenly become a submissive, meek little housewife after she married her husband, that we admire the fact that she didn't conform, that she continued to push for the things that she believed in, and that she had a problem with him cheating on her and said so. Uh, he's on the record as saying, you will close your eyes and endure as your betters have done before you. Captain mm-hmm. of Aragon knew that she couldn't make a fuss. And Anne Boleyn was like, I don't understand this. You cheated on your wife with me. How can you cheat on me?
1: Yeah. Just Anne Boleyn doing the like the surprised Pikachu face. <laughs> I'm totally gonna make that meme later today.
0: <laughs> I can't believe Henry VIII would be a bad husband.
1: Really? No, never to me. I know. Um, <laughs> one thing that this movie and most most Tudor pop culture does not really convey appropriately, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is the fact that Henry and Anne were together for like. I'm blanking on the exact years, but it was like 10 years. It was,
0: yeah, because it's, for, it's 1526 when he's definitely into her and wants her to be at least his mistress. Decade-long relationship. It's, and the movie makes their marriage because we see little baby Elizabeth, again, getting inaccurately swept off by her Auntie Mary as mm-hmm. the baby. And she was three years old. So it does make it seem as though this marriage was maybe eighteen months long or something. It's just a flash in the pan.
1: Yeah, and in reality they they had been together for, yeah, seven or eight years before she finally had sex with him from everything we can tell, and finally got married. Anne Boleyn, towards the end of her life, was dealing with some serious mental health issues mm-hmm. that would it, it would be a little difficult to diagnose from this point and I don't blame her for literally any of it. And girl always had a temper. Yeah. Like that's super well-documented by lots of sources that she had a very sharp temper and had a habit of speaking without thinking. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I feel like that's what led to her downfall yeah. is she spoke without thinking a few too many times in a way that could be interpreted as flirting with other men. Mm-hmm. And that gave Henry the excuse to go after her.
0: Yes. And that is what's interesting, of course, about this reputation she has as the great whore, as this woman who must have slept with a hundred men, that if Anne had any self-control over anything, it was her sexual appetites, because she certainly didn't have much restraint on her temper, but she held out against Henry for until late 1532, despite all of his pestering and all of the pressure and all of the enticements of, if you're his mistress and you give birth to his son, Even then, it's still a pretty good life. And she was holding out for the final triumphant card. Yeah. And as if she wasn't having a conflict with another character that's practically missing from this movie, which is Thomas Cromwell. There is Mm -hmm. a character who's addressed as Cromwell. You, You kind of see him, like, very far off in the distance same with Woolsey. There's a guy who's clearly playing Woolsey. He's wearing a big red robe and a big chain of office. If you, this is your first movie about the Tudors, then you'll be like, I'm sorry, who, who are they talking about? Because we see Henry complaining with with Woolsey and a bunch of other people standing around a table, but he's not directly looking at Woolsey. And then next scene, Henry saying to, to Anne, like, Woolsey is going to take care of this. You'd be like, I'm sorry, who the f- is Woolsey? I don't know who these people are. And I don't know of any cut scenes of a guy playing Woolsey. And you you cannot tell this story without Thomas Woolsey being a super important character.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, in the limits of the movie, I get why he's not talked about that much. Mm -hmm. And same with Cromwell, like barely comes up. And the focus really is on Mary and But also by giving women agency and, and concentrating on them and also villainizing them, They're completely removing these incredibly powerful men who had all this influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's a very strange choice to make.
0: Because it's part of Um, Anne's story, these conflicts that she has with Thomas Wolsey and with Thomas Cromwell. She was a reformer, and the reasons that's theorized about why she had to be gotten rid of is that she made an enemy of Thomas Cromwell that he was a more radical reformer than her, that he wanted to dissolve the monasteries, not just the ones that were hopelessly corrupt, but even the ones that were doing the job of looking after the poor, of serving as hospitals and schools and refuge for the homeless, that he took that money and he wanted to go into the king's funds so he could, you know, have bigger palaces so he can go to war, so he can continue with his competition to have a better codpiece than King Francis I. And she was supposed to have said, no, this is supposed to go to the poor. We're going to give it back to them. And the people might never know that she did care because it's, it's kind of a Marie Antoinette story if Marie Antoinette was less sheltered that, you know, everything has to be this woman's fault. If our king only knew It's this woman with her fancy dresses and her dancing and everything. She's the real problem. Our age-old misogyny, where we make it a woman's fault, this was her real mission, was to continue this reformation that Henry was always very half-hearted about and would go back and forth. You know, he could burn Catholics one day and then burn Protestants the next and whatever, just as long as he was happy with his supposed conscience. That was what he really cared about. And to a certain extent, not a conflict, but almost a friendship with Thomas Cranmer. So Archbishop Thomas Cranmer became Cardinal Woolsey's replacement as the leading churchman. He became Archbishop of Canterbury. And he is the person who married Anne and Henry. He's the person who was helping to subtly push for more Lutheran influences in this version of English Catholicism. Uh, not Roman Catholicism. And he's somebody who believed innocent. He was he was her confessor. He was writing a letter to Henry saying, like, I do not believe that she's, that she's guilty of all of these monstrous crimes. I've never known her to, uh, I've known her to be a good Christian woman this whole time. And then Thomas Cromwell showed up with a bunch of minions and was like, hey, I got a conversation with you over here. And then Cranmer comes back to the letter. He's like, you know what? I've changed my mind. uh, She's probably guilty. I mean, whatever you say, sir. And that's like in this letter that he wrote. So I just find that interesting, of course, that these three other Thomases in her life don't get more than a line of dialogue. And there's no Cranmer. There's no real Woolsey at
1: all. Well, we already have so many Thomases in this film already. Yeah, it's weird. It feels like we're getting the note version where you have to already have a base knowledge of tutors to follow what's going on. Mm -hmm.
0: This book is like six, seven hundred pages long it's based on.
1: Yeah. But the whole point of the movie is that it's like it's supposed to be for people who don't already know a lot of tutors. (laughs) But, you know, I've noticed this with Peter Morgan before, though, because this happens in The Crown a lot Mm -hmm. where there will just be a character there who's never explained. Yes. I'm, I'm writing about a an episode in season four called 48 one, where yeah. there's a character the entire time who's just referred to as Sonny. And I think even on the crown podcast, they referred to him as an advisor. Yeah. No, Sonny isn't an advisor. He is the secretary general of the, com- the Commonwealth. <laughs> and that's a really important role. And they just like never took the time to ever mention that that was his role. Yes. Which yeah. is like, such a are- weird thing to expect people to know who led the Commonwealth in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And that's happened several times in the crown. That's just the example that immediately comes to mind. So mm-hmm. it's a little weird that they're like, oh, we expect you to already know all this. Stuff. Yeah. You and I know this kind of stuff.
0: Like when they have the there's a scene in the crown where the queen is having a discussion with someone who they call the Duchess of Kent. And I know who she is. The widow of the Queen's uncle, Prince George, who died in an airplane crash in 1942. But mm-hmm. you're like, I'm sorry, who is this lady? She's got some kind of weird accent or something. Um, why is this important? And she's kind of been in the background. Same thing with quote unquote Uncle Gloucester. This balding guy who's always seen at certain family events before he disappears suddenly. And they'll mention the Gloucesters. And if you don't know who they are, you're like, who are these? Why? Why are they
1: important? What? Anyway. Yep pick a two side track with the crown. Yeah, but yeah, it's, I get that you can't include everything in history. Yes. I get that some facts will have to be left out. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the disappearance of the husband without any, (laughs) it it just kind of, it it presents a plot hole you can drive a truck through that isn't really a plot hole if you know history. But I'm sorry, you shouldn't, you should be able to follow a movie without reading a book. Yes, exactly. You know,
0: I don't need to have A bunch of side notes and oh well if you read the wiki it's like no i don't need a whole fan website to tell me what's going on in this movie uh this is why i couldn't keep up with game of thrones there's too many bearded white guys i couldn't tell them apart they all had names that are slightly off from european names and i didn't want anybody to win that throne eventually
1: (laughs) but it's so interesting like the three largest roles in this are all played by non-british actors Anne and Mary are played by American actors and Henry VIII is played by an Australian actor. Mm-hmm. But if you look at all the all the other characters, it's like who's who of British actors. You've got Jim Sturgis, you've got Mark Rylance, you've got David Morrissey, you've got Benedict Puber- Cumberbatch, you've, yeah. you've got Eddie Redmayne, you've got Andrew Garfield. And some of these people, like it would take another seven years for them to get known for anything at all.
0: Yeah, and Garfield, he plays Francis Weston. And you'd never know that. I didn't, I don't think I even noticed he was on screen. And I've seen this movie like three times now because her other lover is not mentioned.
1: Didn't you want to talk about, um, how did you put it? Sir, not in this film.
0: Yes, sir, not appearing in this film. Okay, so these are the lovers supposedly of Anne besides her brother. So we are again talking about an absence of in this film. This is the men that she... Supposedly had an affair with. So first of all, Mark Smeaton, he was a court musician and was supposed to have had an affair with him because he was the only one who confessed to it. Now, that's very interesting and telling that Mark Smeaton was a commoner. So he was the only one who could legally be tortured. Torture is a little, it's a little fuzzy at this time period where like you had to get permission from the king for it. It wasn't used as often as I think that, like, if you go on a tour of the Tower of London, you see all these instruments of torture and racks and everything. People will say, like, oh, that's so medieval, that's so barbaric. It was more commonly used during Elizabeth's reign when she had, like, a professional spy network set up. It was something that you didn't need to go to her to ask permission to use. Anyway, Mark Smeaton, it's debatable whether or not he was tortured. The reason why I lean to... yes he was tortured argument is because he is the only one who admitted it and he gave specific dates when he and Anne were supposed to have had their affair and she wasn't even in the same palace as him at that time but he's like pretty much saying whatever will get the torture to end probably. The other men did not admit anything continue to insist on their innocence and they're the ones who were not tortured. I would agree
1: yeah. Elizabeth is very, very lucky that she looked so much like Henry VIII. Yes, I know. But I don't her. I don't believe her paternity was ever in question, even with all the issues and charges of adultery, because she just she was his spitting image. Yeah, like because- you can even see it in portraits. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, they have the same nose, the same hair.
0: She just had her mother's eyes and kind of face shape. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So really, because Elizabeth was conceived a bit before the wedding. That meant, and nobody was suggesting that at the same time in 1532, Anne Boleyn was having it off with her brother or any of these other men who were supposed to be her lovers. Mary Tudor, the half-sister, the daughter of Queen Catherine of Aragon, she would say, Oh, I think that my so-called sister looks like Mark Smeaton, the musician. And everyone would be like, Sure, whatever you say, your majesty. like, God, you can't pull that lie off at all because she's so clearly Henry's daughter.
1: Yeah, plus she said that like, gosh, 15, 20 years after the events of this yeah. time. And Mark Smeaton was a nobody. There wouldn't have been any drawings or pictures of him. Mm-hmm. So, like, she's going purely off an extremely biased viewpoint. Yeah. And she was a teenager when this all went down, a very traumatized teenager. So, yeah. like,
0: who was not allowed to stick around the court.
1: Yeah. I've always wondered why these were the people that were accused of adultery with Anne. I mean, there's, there's some instances. Uh-huh that it can sort of be explained. But for the most part, you, you sort of look at it and you go, wait, what? So the other three men, we're going to leave George Boleyn out for a second. Um, William Brereton, Henry Norris, and Sir Francis Weston. They all served the king. They were all gentlemen. And they were all pretty close. Henry Norris was actually a, the groom of the stool.
0: Yes. What's the groom of the stool, <sighs> Rachel?
1: Tell the audience. <sighs> the groom of the stool. Um <laughs> Kings didn't wipe their own butts. We'll just put it that way. Like that was a thing. And it was an honor. Um, It was actually an honor because they got to be there even in their most intimate mm-hmm. private moments. And the grooms of the stool had significant yep. influence on on their sovereign. Mm-hmm. Very close people to the king were taken down. And people that were theoretically his his Literally. friends.
0: I'm sorry to put you through that. Okay. The reason I made you tell everyone what that is. Is because when I was taking one of my early modern Britain classes, the professor brought up Groom of the Stool, and I was the only person who burst out laughing. And then he was like, Oh, so you know why that's funny, right? <laughs> and then I had to explain to the class. What yeah, I was.
1: that's evil, and I love it. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, so these are all, so like Gentlemen of the Privy Chamber, for example, So Francis Weston, played by Andrew Garfield, Groom of the Stool of the Privy Chamber. For Henry Norris, William Brereton, also a member of the Groom of the Privy Chamber. Mark Smeaton, the commoner, I think, is thrown in there as somebody who would have regular access to the Queen. He'd be in her room and was notorious, quote unquote, for dancing and having musicians in her rooms with her ladies at all times. It's like in the time before record players, of course, you want to have like live music. You're embroidering and sewing and reading the Bible all day. You want to have a little musical accompaniment. I understand that. These men, Norris, Weston, Brereton, men that are close to Henry VIII, Mark Smeaton, being a commoner, is kind of thrown in there like, oh, I understand going with one of his friends, but when who just plays the viola and sings, how dare she, the filth of it. She was willing to go with anybody. She probably got some boy in the, the kitchen up to her room with all the free time that she had. Servants were very close, like, You would have a servant, if you're the king or the queen, sometimes like sleeping at the foot of your bed, like not on the bed, but on the floor. You would have people guarding the room. Something that the show The Tudors does very well, actually, is showing servants in a room almost all the time. And that's how we have so much dialogue from the period, is people obviously ratted out their masters. Maybe they Ambassador Shapwe was going around saying like, hey, heard any good gossip lately? there was always somebody nearby because there was so much to do and so few things that aristocrats really did themselves including as you said yes taking Um, care of
1: business yeah i mean i think it's hard for us to imagine because we have such a a different idea of privacy now but privacy wasn't really a thing then like even the king probably was not sleeping in a bed by himself his servant would probably sleep in a bed with him that was the thing um i mean not on nights when he was like you know going to go bang at life. It was even noble shared <laughs> beds. Like we have all sorts of evidence of this. Kings and queens were constantly surrounded by not even just a few servants, but more than we can possibly imagine. There were probably 10 to 20 people in yeah. Anne Boleyn's chambers when she was the queen at all times. That's why we both keep laughing about these charges against Anne Boleyn because one of the primary reasons they're ludicrous is because she was never alone. She didn't have free time. She didn't have privacy. There's really no way she could have, you know, done all these things she was accused of.
0: Yeah, uh, we we mentioned before about Anne possibly having some kind of, I don't know, nervous breakdown that we cannot blame her for at all, especially once she was in the tower, that she was noted to laugh hysterically, to burst into tears, to talk sort of fancifully about how she... This is not really happening or this is happening. She deserves it. Just sort of like rambling incoherently before she pulled herself together on her final day, which we will discuss. But it's because she constantly had people spying on her that the ladies that she had thought that she trusted, including she had two cousins, Margaret and Mary Shelton, who were two of her ladies. She did not have the ladies that she trusted with her in the tower. The ones that she had in the tower to help her out with, you know, all the dressing and undressing and everything were people put there by Thomas Cromwell to continue to spy on her to get any evidence. And the thing is, he didn't get any new evidence when she was now probably never going to make it out of that tower. Now that she had no resources left, she wasn't admitting anything of real guilt, of anything substantial at all, other than I'm a weak and sinner in need of mercy that everyone yeah. spoke like back then.
1: Fun fact, when I worked at the Renaissance Fair, I played Mary Shelton. That was that was technically my character. Um, oh wow, okay. So like did you do sort of a-, a um, I was an on-street extra, extra I believe, extra numerary. So um, I basically filled out the court um, along with a couple other people and the more formalized members of the cast had more like actual plays and stuff to do. I basically just walked around and looked pretty and interacted with people, like took pictures with kids and improvised in accent um, while talking with people. It was a lot of fun. Um, Mm -hmm. I really, it was at the Maryland Renaissance Fair, which is incredible and really well done. And I would recommend it to anyone who lives anywhere near Maryland. But
0: uh, Henry Norris, the reason I need to bring him up, of course, is that he is the one that Anne is supposed to quote, committed treason with for speculating about the death of the king. Henry Norris was always hanging around in Anne's rooms because he supposedly wanted to marry her cousin Margaret or Mad Shelton but he wasn't making the move to actually marry her and so Anne was sort of reprimanding him for that and saying like oh I think you're coming here for me and not for my cousin. And That was a very shocking thing for the queen to say. It was again stepping over the line of courtly love, of like, oh, my lady, you are the fairest of them all. I put you above my own wife. This was her sort of like flirting back in a sense, like even if she wasn't interested in him, it was going a bit too far. And so I think if you're going to include anybody besides her brother, you have to bring up Henry Norris as the buddy of the king yeah. that has quote unquote betrayed him with his wife and why it's more believable. Like, I mean, accusing anybody of incest at any time is one of the most outrageous things you can do, and you need so okay. You think you need proof of that, but accusing someone of adultery to the point of plotting to kill your own husband to be with him—I think that's a little more. I want to say credible, not credible for Anne to have done it, but for a human being yeah, to have done,
1: um, it, including a And queen. I think we talked earlier about Anne Boleyn's temper and her habit of saying things and then regretting them later, and that's pretty much exactly what happened with Henry North. She probably was just yes. joking around, but what she actually said I believe was something along the lines of yeah. you look to fill dead men's shoes talking about Henry VIII. And at the time it was a yes. crime to discuss the death of the king. Like it was actually mm-hmm. I believe treason. Yeah, you could yeah. you can't. You couldn't even go to funeral. You can't joke about that. Yeah, it was probably a pretty, pretty fatal comment, which was one of the final nails in her coffin. That's definitely the through line for why Henry Norris got pulled in. I don't believe we have any good. And I believe there was an incident with Mark Smeaton where he like just was looking at her too long or something and she was talking about it. I don't believe we have any good evidence for why Brereton or Weston were pulled in. It's been a minute since I've read a really in-depth thing about Anne Boleyn's trial, but I don't think we know how they got pulled
0: in. And Jane Parker. George Boleyn is the brother who Anne attempts to seduce in order to conceive a child that will reasonably be Henry VIII's because she can't trust anybody else in the novel, they go all the way, you don't see anything apparently, it's just kind of like Anne admits it to Mary. So Anne is guilty in that version of the crime she is accused of of adultery and incest. Here, they kind of like unbutton each other's chemises, but then they're too grossed out to do it. Which, you know, good good for you, movie for not going that mm-hmm. far.
1: Yeah, George Bullen's an interesting character. There's this plotline of George and Jane Parker hating each other is really, it shows up a lot, but I don't believe there's any evidence mm. for it. I'm trying to, I don't remember exactly where I read this, but it, the, more than one historian- You mean that they were unhappy
0: and that she deliberately tattled on him in order to get him murdered? Yeah,
1: it's, it's a weird thing. And yeah. more than one historian has written about it to point out that this probably wasn't the case. There's no evidence supporting it. I believe, and, and George yeah. is also commonly portrayed- Well, I don't know commonly. In more than one thing, I've seen him portrayed as either gay or in Mm -hmm. some way sexually immoral, according to the mores of the time.
0: But even not according to the mores of the time that, like, he's a rapist, that, you know, people, they had a problem with rape back then. It was a much narrower spectrum of what they considered rape, but yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, if I recall, that traces back to um, a speech he made right before he was executed. I'm trying to find the exact bit. Oh, here we go. I, I say unto you all that if I had followed God's word indeed as I did read it and set it forth to my power, I had not come to this. So strongly mm-hmm. implying that he has he's feeling guilty about something. He's found something wrong. Yes. And so I believe that's where all these characterizations of George is either mm-hmm. gay or rapist or something like that pops out from. But we also that's that's the only evidence we have.
0: Yeah, and it, that's so vague. Every single person that I know of who was executed said, I'm a very great sinner. I sucked so much. I'm so sorry for everything I've ever done. The king is such a nice guy. Please don't come after my family after I'm dead. Okay, thanks, bye." everybody has a certain formula that they follow when they're convicted, even if they believe that they're innocent. So There's nothing where George ever implies that like, oh yeah, me and my sister are guilty of doing this or my sister alone is guilty with these other men. I had nothing to do with it. So I think that's a lot to read into it. This version of George Boleyn, he's a nice guy. He is going along with the pimping out of his sisters, but he cares about them and they confide in him. And it is meant to be tragic when he dies. And here they don't indicate ever in the movie that he's queer in any way. He just doesn't like his wife and who can blame him with how she's portrayed.
1: Yeah. I feel like poor Jane Parker has been given kind of a, she's been portrayed so badly over the years and there's really no evidence for a lot of it. We do have records. I believe that Anne and George were very close. Like they were very close Mm -hmm. siblings, but that's (laughs) it. I think I honestly think the incest charge was just invented to move all the charges over the top to make it very clear that, oh, oh, she needs to mm-hmm. die. Because here's the thing, um, we don't really talk about this enough, but Anne Boleyn was the first English queen ever to be executed. And it's not like there weren't previous English mm-hmm. queens who definitely kind of deserve to be executed, like... Eleanor of Aquitaine openly <laughs> supported her son's revolt against their their dad. She was just imprisoned mm-hmm. for the rest of the king's life. Like, she wasn't executed.
0: Anne did not have a power base of another country backing her up. She was an English woman. She was a commoner, despite, obviously, her the status of her parents. She didn't have... The holy roman empire and spain the way that catherine of aragon did for why henry the did didn't just execute his first wife for her intransigence um same with like anne of cleves she stepped aside when he didn't care for her and he didn't want to piss off her brother the duke of cleves whereas with anne once everybody abandoned her or was executed alongside her there was nothing that was going to stop him. He wasn't going to start a war over killing her.
1: So I think that is definitely yeah, part of it. but no one, the other thing is, no one really ever thought he would kill her. Like, they didn't They didn't really execute women then. Like, that wasn't um, a thing. Everyone really thought she was going to get to, like, go to a nunnery or just live the rest of her life in solitude mm-hmm. or something.
0: But yeah, Jane Parker, Um, <laughs> gotta get back to her. So we don't know that much about Jane Parker from this time period presented in the movie. We know more about her from when she was serving Queen Catherine Howard a couple of years later, when she really made a name for herself as a kind of panderer uh, helping her out. And uh, so a lot of these things about her that she did wrong years later sort of reverberated back through time, that she must have been somebody really terrible during the time of Anne Boleyn as well, that she testified against her own husband, and that clearly she's the one who started these rumors in the first place when there's no evidence for that at all. Whereas the movie has her being the instigator of the downfall of both George and Anne. She is the one who witnesses what she thinks is them about to have sex, and she's not exactly wrong. She goes straight to Uncle Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, and he goes straight to the king. So she's setting off a chain of events out of spite and awfulness. It's another woman we're not supposed to like.
1: I'm really trying not to say anything wrong here. If I recall, we have a lot more evidence of the testimony from Catherine Howard's trial and the witness against her rather than from Anne Boleyn. It seems yeah. like the records were much better kept at Catherine Howard's mm-hmm. than Anne Boleyn's. And it's still really unclear exactly mm-hmm. who testified against Anne Boleyn, if I recall. Um,
0: the point is, Jane Parker, probably a very maligned woman as well, like Catherine Howard, like Anne Boleyn. And it's part of this mythos that in almost every version I've ever seen of this story, Jane Parker, maybe she's um, a victim in it, like in the show The Tudors where George Boleyn on their wedding night rapes her and you can see why she's very upset uh, and why she doesn't care what happens to him and why she feels resentful of his closeness with Anne instead. But it is definitely not fair for her to be the instigator of this plotting of their downfall. When the real instigator of it, i I mean, it's complicated, of course, that Henry was circa April of 1536. He was still pushing for somebody important to marry his daughter, Elizabeth. He was not doubting her legitimacy. He was not doubting Anne's fidelity. He was still pushing for his marriage to be recognized. He was still pushing for people to honor her as his queen and his wife. He was not looking to get rid of her. And within a few short weeks, it's, I never loved her. How dare she get rid of her for me? So what happens during this period, of course, is overlapping confluence of circumstances. But it is not Jane Parker initiating it. I think we're pretty confident
1: about that. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Um, Because, I mean, Henry did have a habit of rewarding people right before he struck them down. Like that
0: but That is true. He's a He's
1: such he's a, a jerk. Oh my god, he did it to <laughs> Have we mentioned that we don't He's really fascinating, <laughs> but he was not a good person. Like he was yeah, a terrible a complicated person. Guy. I
0: at least I try to take people in their time. I don't know, say like the portrayal of Shylock and the Merchant of Venice. That's pretty anti Semitic by our standards. By the standards of the time, the fact that Shylock is kind of a three-dimensional character exactly, yeah. is pretty good, for example. Yeah, so I'm not... I think, though, that Henry VIII, even for a Renaissance king, committed a lot of crimes that were very selfishly motivated, including, of course, I won't my wife give me a son? <laughs> that uh, is treatment of the people closest to him was pretty despicable that he often had the option to leave them alone to, I don't know, let them move abroad or enter a convent or something, but no, it's not good enough. You have to say I'm the best and the greatest and everything I ever did is right. Yeah. Tracy Borman has a very good documentary that she just came out with like last month. And it's three episodes, one each one is about Anne's arrest, which took place at a tennis match not just after an awful conversation with Henry VIII because he's mad at her. Because, as we said, Henry liked to pretend things were cool, and then just when you think you can relax a little bit, oh, nope, he's swooped in and taken you off, and he never meets with you again because he's a coward. <sighs> Deep breath. <laughs> and then the second episode is about her trial, and then the third episode is about her execution. So I had thought initially, like, oh, my God, do we need another documentary about the last days of Anne Boleyn. Tracy Borman is me wrong because it is very detailed to drill down on these days. She's kind of expecting that, you know, the background to her relationship with Henry VIII in advance, and that's fine. Um, So I really recommend those for getting the details of like, just the journey to the tower from Greenwich and what's happening, uh, her trial Versus the trial of the men she was accused of having all of these affairs with. thats really. I'll have to watch that. That sounds
1: fascinating. Um,
0: the trial does have her defending herself. Um, and she does conduct herself very well. It is accurate that her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, was one of the peers who condemned her. Um, that she had had a falling out with him. She supposedly spoke to him the way that one would not speak to their dog. If it is true that he had been the one who had pimped her out to Henry in the first place and she kind of blamed him for her situation now, maybe that would explain it. I think it's, again, it's like retroactively trying to figure out what happened. But yeah, it's terribly unfair that a man who had benefited so much is now saying that she is this great whore and not treating her at all like his mess the way you'd expect. But Anne is supposed to have conducted herself very well She had an answer to everything. She wasn't like, there there was no way she was going to win. I think that probably she had some hope, but the trial is depicted accurately in the sense that she was always going to, there was nothing she could say to defend herself really. Once everyone had made up their mind against her, they were not going to say, you know what? I think she might be innocent. I think I'm gonna vote against this, the rest of the men here. Interesting fact about the trial. So, the jury was composed of 16 peers. Two members of this jury, one of them the foreman of the jury, were sons in law of Sir Thomas More. There was Giles Heron, who was a ward of, of Thomas More's when he was a young man before he reached his majority. He became a lawyer. He married Thomas More's daughter, Cecily. And the other one was also a Giles named Giles Allington. And he married Thomas Moore's stepdaughter, Alice Middleton. So they're both put on this jury probably as a test of their loyalty by Cromwell. That, okay, I know that I executed your father-in-law that you really loved. But, like, let's see, you've already sworn the oath to the act of supremacy, the act of succession. But I need to really prove once and for all that you're gonna be on the king's side and also probably they were like yeah i guess this bitch is guilty thomas More is never known to have said a bad word against anne that doesn't mean that his family felt the same way so yeah giles heron is the foreman of the jury who then read out the charges against Mm -hmm. Anne, which i just find an interesting fact (laughs) and then her execution which is portrayed accurately that she is executed by sword george boleyns is not portrayed accurately because he's shown being dragged to the scaffold, he's crying, he's shaking. And he was really remarkable for his composure, like the way his sister was, that he died in the Protestant faith, according to his beliefs. And people were saying, you know what? He was not that bad, actually. He was a, a, what a talented young man that we have lost. Um, Some of the bad things that were said about him were by George Cavendish, who wrote a biography of Thomas Woolsey, who had been his master. So he, of course, was not a fan of the Boleyns. Again, leaving out Thomas Wolsey is a big omission because it's such a motivation for why the Boleyns moved against him. But uh, yeah, it's not very fair portrayal of George and Anne to show them falling apart when they're about to die when every single eyewitness at the time, even her enemies, were yeah.
1: remarking upon how... I would agree. That's one big problem to I have us. with that portrayal. And Anne had been through a lot. The other thing um, they show this in the tutors, it doesn't come up in other Berlin girl her execution had been delayed like two or three times because the executioner from Calais was mm. like he was he was running late. Um, he kept getting delayed on the road or something. So Anne Boleyn didn't just yeah. go to death knowing she was about to die. She had been prepared to die for like the past two days and it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed Which would kind of drive anyone a little mad, I think. And then, so she dealt with all that, and then she was totally composed and spoke like a queen. It's such a shame, because she she really was such Mm -hmm. a highly intelligent woman and such a brilliant person. And she's, Mm -hmm. in this film, she's portrayed a lot less than she really was. Two-dimensionally. I'm not always
0: I'm not always a fan of Anne Boleyns. I mean, as I said, Catherine of Aragon is my favorite queen. I think that she was really screwed over and continues to be screwed over a lot of the times in portrayals, even by Philip Gregory, who seems to be on her side in the other Boleyn girl. But then, this, if this, I have not read the Constant Princess. You are further along than I am. But if it's anything like the series, the Spanish Princess, where every possible good aspect of Catherine of Aragon. ...is twisted and turned around and makes her look like the pettiest bitch you ever met. I know, it's another sort of female protagonist that could have a lot of great things to be done with her... ...and instead is just cutting her down. Anyway, I'm sorry, (laughs) I went off topic again. Anne is not always someone I want to root for. However, she is never less than fascinating. She is somebody who, there's so many things to admire about her, even if you don't always agree with her choices... There's something so modern about her that speaks to us across the ages. There's a reason why she is a woman that we never get tired of portraying. She's the, she's like a hamlet in a sense that like you can't capture every aspect of her, but you can try. And this doesn't try. Again, I think Natalie Portman does her best. This is not a, anything against her. She's doing what's written. But I think there was a lost opportunity to show her at the very least as a good mother, that she doesn't seem to care that much about Elizabeth and leaving her behind compared to her own fate. It's mostly self-pity.
1: I think that's what really bothers me. I would agree. I mean, she was so forward thinking of how her execution would affect her daughter, of how it would affect the people around her. It seemed like she, she had already, Mm -hmm she knew she was innocent and people believe very strongly in life after death and heaven and stuff at that point. She, I I feel like all that, that certainty in her salvation would have comforted her a lot more in Mm -hmm. her final days than they show in this. And all the records, all the records back that up. Yeah.
0: Her religious beliefs were, she may not have been the best Christian in the sense of what Jesus would want, but she was sincere about this. Yes, I've got a Pinterest board of the other Berlin girls so I can look at the costumes. <laughs> That's
1: <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Well, can um, I see? Can you send me the link? I want to see now.
0: <laughs> I have the most ridiculous Pinterest. I should never have discovered it. And yet, okay yeah it's a secret board sorry (laughs) it's like one section out of all the other early modern era movies that i've seen that i wanted to look at the costumes and stuff you know frock flicks so yeah
1: i I can just pull it up on frock flicks real quick or yeah something similar sorry we just there's too much for you to get (laughs) trying to simplify i I totally get oh oh cool i found a good resource okay
0: Just so we both know what we're talking about at the same time, somewhat. Oh, yeah. All right, Rachel and I are back to talk about The Other Boleyn Girl, and we're going to get to the costumes. Generally, these are surprisingly good. I suppose my standards are pretty low. (laughs) Again, we love the Tudors, the show. A lot of those (laughs) costumes are straight-up fantastical, like Game of Thrones levels of,
1: "Ah, it's (laughs) history-inspired Uh, well, okay, I'm going to interrupt you there because Game of Thrones costumes are actually very intricate and there's like a consistency to them that's yes. really fascinating, but uh, Tudor's is wildly inconsistent. I don't um, even know what's going on there. I love Tudor's, but yeah, the, the costumes are awful. Yeah, um, the,
0: with the Tudor's, I find that the older character is meant to be, the more accurate the costumes are. So everybody who's over 30 by the first season And we don't see in a sex scene. They're wearing hose. They're wearing those cow kind of shoes that they call them. Like the square toed things. They're not walking around with their their chemise unbuttoned all the time. We don't see their bare arm. It's like a Disney movie where the main characters have American accents. But then like everybody else in Beauty and the Beast has like a French accent. Or one for some reason. Because they're not meant to be the characters that we identify with as much
1: yeah no I'm looking at all these and all of the costumes that Anne and Mary wear at least seem to be from for the most part at least seem to be from the Tudor era even if they're not accurate to 1520s and 1530s
0: yeah Um, England so some of them are a little more Italian Renaissance time period is different country some of them are a little German like the riding outfit that Anne wears is kind of more Elizabethan. Because with the Elizabethan era, thanks to, of course, Anne's daughter, women can show their hair more often. They wear those fetching little caps that are kind of more masculine. And because she was the virgin queen, she wore her hair uncovered and sometimes just long. And people were like, you know what? Maybe we don't need to uh, do all this work to hide our hair. Maybe we could have hairstyles instead.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There are a couple, I mean, there's a few in here that are like quite obviously German, not English. And there's one scene where Anne and Mary walk along and talk about Mary's losing her virginity. And they're both wearing these long rope things that I don't even know what that's referencing.
0: I don't know, but they, they both have like these leaves.
1: Gorgeous, but they don't resemble anything I've ever seen in history. Well, I think what works
0: for me is that it is this repeating geometric pattern that is from the time period, usually a bit smaller than that. The mistakes that are made in costumes is like there's a dress that Anne wears that has these gigantic calla calla lilies on them. Hmm. Um, She wears things like that a couple of times where on the stomacher, the bodice of her dress, she'll have like a big applique or embroidered flower that is definitely not from the period there's better versions of the costumes that they're wearing where you'll see the underskirt will have pattern of flowers. That is more of the time period Um, or leaves or almost like a Greek design. That makes more sense instead of like, I'm going to take a curtain, cut a piece out of it and then glue it onto this dress. Yeah. But I think what's most important of course is how it shows the characters. So that there are many times where, especially in the earlier part of the film, where Anne and Mary are wearing matching outfits. Not 100% identical because they wear different colors and different underskirts or different turned back sleeves, but it's as though their dad had brought back some fabric and they made these dresses together because Anne Boleyn was known as a very good needlewoman. She made her own clothes a lot of the times. She probably had like a whole workshop of ladies to help her out once she became queen. It shows the unity of their relationship and how much closer they are when they are wearing these corresponding complementary outfits. Mm-hmm. And there's a period where they reconcile briefly and they go back to wearing the very similar outfits. Anne has that lovely jewel tone blue dress with the that jeweled lining with the pearls. And she consistently wears that famous Boleyn necklace that you have, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, that she does, she doesn't come from a royal household. She's not identifying with Spain. She, of course, identifies with France heavily, but not as much in this movie because she only spent like six months there. Um, but this is her, this is her house that she is representing in this court. She is showing her team colors, and so it's probably not accurate that she wore that necklace every single day, but it makes sense for this characterization of her.
1: Yes, I'm looking over these, and it. it- it also mm-hmm. seems that both characters have their own color palette. Like mm-hmm. Mary is almost always exclusively dressed in things that highlight her blonde hair. So like yeah. golds and yellows and even other colors. Like there's one in that weird Rome scene where there's like touches of blue. There's still mm-hmm. gold. There's still orange in there. And then Anne is dressed in a lot of green and a lot of blues. Some yeah. reds, but even though seem to be a little bit more cool toned. Works for the Betty
0: versus Veronica dynamic.
1: Oh, yeah. And then, of course, I'm pretty sure, it's never stated in the film, but pretty sure all the green is a reference to the urban myth. Well, not <laughs> even count as urban Tudor myth that Greensleeves was written about Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. Which it was not. Greensleeves is based off of a form of music deriving from Italy that didn't even come to England for decades after... Mm-hmm. Anne Boleyn died, but it is it is a fun myth to play with and I like yeah. a nod to it.
0: Yeah, that could be a reason why she wears that very bold green dress when she reappears at court after her little vacation in France. I <laughs> thing that's weird about the dress is that it looks as though the sleeves are detached, not just from the elbow, because this is like the sleeve-centric time. Everything is about, I can't lift my forearms because I'm wearing so much fur. You can almost see her armpits. It's a little bit strange that it's showing that much shoulder. I suppose it's meant to be that instead of going really deep on the cleavage, which would not be accurate for Anne especially, who was known to be rather flat-chested. Instead, she's showing off her lovely shoulders. And So, again, it makes sense for the character. Bold, brilliant, green. Could be referenced to her being a jade, which was like a, a thing you don't call a nice girl back then. There's a reason why Anne is the protagonist or at the very least a very prominent character in so much of narratives and dramatizations of this time period, because well-behaved women rarely make history, as we say. So she wants to stand out in the crowd. And if it's a color of like jealousy and ambition, fertility and growth, there's a lot going on here.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, wide necks were a thing there, but I agree with you that the yeah. neck on this is this it It's a little... In- it's almost a
0: sleeveless dress, like you'd wear a, a strapless dress, I mean, but then they just kind of like attach sleeves to it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I know what yeah. You mean. Actually, I used to work at a Renaissance Fair. Well, it was one season and I was like an extra. Yeah. I can confirm Lovely. that those sleeves are very, very long and heavy and unwieldy and... Okay. It takes some practice to, like, <laughs> use a privy, if you know what I mean. And I'm sure that th- my experience was much more comfortable than a lot of the historical stuff.
0: But Yeah, all. because you can, like, flop down in a chair when you're tired. <laughs> They're expected to sit up straight. Yes. I wanted to talk a bit about the men's costumes, too. In the first scene, Mark Rylance, who plays Thomas Boleyn, he's dressed exactly like the portrait that we have of Thomas Boleyn, with the beard, with the same sort of like slash the doublet. That's a very good job they did in terms of that costume. You have observed that they're probably a little extra boxy for circa 1520 when the movie begins. Mm-hmm. Everything gets bigger and puffier. I could spend all day comparing Henry VIII to a certain ex-president who shall not be named because he doesn't deserve more space in my head right now. But they both have in common when they get to be larger men wearing bigger clothes so that they kind of dominate the room and you're not looking at them when they're in their tennis whites. So the sleeves are probably a bit too big for the beginning of the movie, but they're more accurate to around the time that, well, Anne loses her head.
1: Yeah, I I will admit, I know a lot more about women's fashions from the 1520s and 30s than I know men's fashions. But yeah, I definitely was under the impression that The really big, wide, boxy cut derived mostly from Henry getting bigger and adopting looser fashions like that. And this, I mean, in this film from like day one, there's scenes where you see George Boleyn wearing a coat that swamps him completely. Like (laughs) that, he, uh, Jim Ster just, he is not a large man. And it just, it kind of just looks like he's wearing his dad's outfit as a small town, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I just don't think it got that crazy until the 1530s, so yeah, closer to Anne's death. But that's that's another thing, is this film doesn't give you any idea of how much time passes, where you're never entirely clear what year it is.
0: Yeah, we're seeing about 15 years of time. If we're going just from the date of Mary Boleyn's wedding in 1520, which by the way, Henry VIII attended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a very compressed time, so no, the fashions don't really change throughout I do want to mention the costume designer, Sandy Powell. She designed the costumes for Shakespeare in Love, which, of course, is set decades after this in the 1590s. I do find that there are a lot of Tudor movies where they'll take fashions from the Elizabethan era and transpose them into the Henrician era. Again, because of the sexier, tighter silhouette, usually, they did not do that here with the men that the men are very much from the time of Henry VIII. I don't see any Elizabethan fashions for them, so I'm very impressed by that. Again, the exposed hair sometimes, but it's not that big of a deal. I'm impressed by how big the hoods are, that it's very common to see a lot of French hoods as a kind of glorified headband. And no, no, these take up a lot of space, and they'll often wear like a velvet covering over the back of their head because hair is very sexy and when you're a married woman that's meant to be for your husband and i mean it's fine hanging out at home with it not everybody dressed every day like they were getting their portrait taken or taken painted <laughs> yeah everybody dressed much fancier for when they were getting hans holbein to come over it's quite a risk to have people not look like their modern day versions of sexy but the men are wearing hose. They're wearing pantaloons that are big and puffy. They're, the women are wearing sometimes very unflattering big headdresses. And I admire the courage that goes into that.
1: Yes. I, I do love that they actually, for the most part, got the hats and the hair coverings correct. So many yeah. people get them wrong. and Or like, they'll be like the White Queen and just pretend no one ever wore hats ever. Yeah, they do, they do a pretty good job. There are a few Elizabethan... Costume notes here and there like in the collars and in some of the fit, but it's nothing super obvious like you don't see neck ruffs Thank you. So but yeah, no overall really pretty good costumes like Not the best Mm. historical costumes. I've seen but up there pretty good
0: Yeah, it's impressive for this time period and by this time period I mean the 21st century when usually they just kind of throw that out and you see women wearing makeup in a time when only harlots wore makeup, for example, that they dared to let people look natural. I'm not seeing really obvious eyeshadow when everyone's going to bed. Mm. <laughs> and also, chemises. In a lot of historical movies, a big issue I have is that people, especially women, they'll be wearing a corset, a girdle, a bodice, something like that, and nothing underneath. And then sometimes they show you how uncomfortable that would be that there's like, marks on the back and the stomach and they're very itchy and uncomfortable and you're like yeah that's why people wore something between the underwear and the skin so that you prevent that chafing and that damage to the skin and the discomfort there's no time period unless again you're working in a house of ill repute where you're constantly taking your clothes off so it doesn't matter you wear a chemise under that So the fact that we see them in nightgowns of the period that are just a voluminous white material. Yeah. That's pretty
1: great. Yes, definitely agreed. I mean, this issue is coming a bit more to the forefront right now because of Bridgerton. We famously see some of the women in Bridgerton not wearing chemises and like visible bruising under the corsets. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's not accurate to the time. That's not fair to your actresses. Like don't do that to people. Corsets yeah, can actually I... be pretty comfortable, like in corseted dresses. We don't know exactly what stays from this era looked like because people didn't paint women in their underwear, but um, <laughs> they wouldn't be like what you think they look like. Mm-hmm. The, the Renaissance fairs lied to you. <laughs> people wore them daily. We know that they weren't. There, there were ways to wear them comfortable, comfortably daily.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's another reason for these linens that they wear under the clothes. And that's because that's what they wash uh-huh. the most. It's so hard. That, okay, they don't have, quote unquote, washing machines. And these incredibly fancy, elaborate, pearl-studded, gemmed gowns, you can't regularly beat that. What you wash the most often is the clothes that are closest to your skin, which is the chemise, which is the linen, which is whatever you'd accidentally pee on, frankly, because they didn't have underwear as we think of Mm -hmm. it right now. And that's how people were not as smelly and terrible as we think that they are because the underclothes were washed so often, usually in urine, which is sterile and we're getting pretty gross here. (laughs) One last thing, the partlets. So a partlet is a piece of material that fills in the neckline of a low cut dress. And I've despaired of ever seeing them Because in so many period dramas, they don't wear the partlets because they want us to see the cleavage. And sometimes there might be a shawl because it's cold, but that's about it. This movie has friggin' partlets. It's pretty sheer, but that's accurate to the time period. Some of them are more, more opaque, some of them are more sheer. Really good job there, Sandy Powell, for taking that into consideration. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, I just want to say the rating.
1: Uh, as a film itself, I would say itself. four out of five. It's a very good film overall. And historical accuracy, There, it has its moments, mm-hmm. both good and bad. I would personally give it like a two, two and a half out of five. Yeah. What would you um, say?
0: Yeah, um, I, think, I think I'd go for a two and a half out of five as well. You'd have to know really what you're looking for to really notice a lot of the historical inaccuracies. And as a film, maybe three out of five. I think that the cinematography is very good. The costumes, very good. Acting, the casting, the only real issue I have is Eric Bana, because they couldn't even dye his hair red. Uh, he doesn't really feel like Henry VIII to me at any point, and he's normally a very good actor. Yeah, what would you recommend people watch instead, um, instead, fiction or nonfiction?
1: Alison Weir wrote a really great... Book about sort of the last days of Anne Boleyn called The Lady in the Tower, which does a really in depth day by day book. And it's fascinating. It's really well done. And if you'd like, it's not, I'm not claiming this is accurate, but the Tudors, the first two seasons of the Tudors, give you a lot better idea of how in love Henry Mm -hmm. and Anne really were for a long time. And it gives you a better idea of the length of their relationship Mm -hmm. and the effects of it. Like, they never got into, like, people were executed for not supporting Anne as Queen. Like, that literally happened. A lot of people. Um, <laughs> and they yeah. never get into that here. And I feel like the tutors did a good job of showing the huge impact that Anne Boleyn actually had on history and the country.
0: Yeah, I recommend both of those. I recommend also the book I mentioned before, The Creation of Anne Boleyn by Susan Bordeaux. In terms of more scholarly book. There is Eric Ives's biography of Anne, The Life and Death of Anne Boleyn. Tracy Borman does very good work as well. And Alison Weir has written several books, of course, about the time period, including The Six Wives of Henry VIII, which is another book. In terms of fiction, besides The Tudors, there is the movie Anne of the Thousand Days, which also has a lot of historical inaccuracies. However, that is one kick-ass portrayal of Anne Boleyn. Jean-Vierre Bujold, I recommend that even just for her performance alone and The Six Wives of Henry VIII, the series from 1970, where every wife gets her own episode. So you finally feel some justice. And it has a reddish blonde Catherine of Aragon played by Annette Crosby. So check that out. Yeah, sure, it's super fun. And um, that's really great talking with you, Rachel. Yes, we will have to do this again, of course. There's so much more Tudor stuff to talk about, but we're both interested in other eras, I swear. Oh, that would be so awesome.
1: We will definitely talk about something Japanese. All right. Yes, have a good one. Thank you. Thank you
0: so much, Rachel. And that's it for The Other Boleyn Girl. Give us a rating and subscribe if you want an alert for the next episode of Rebooting History on Film. I don't have a theme song yet, so for now I'm avoiding intellectual property claims by singing thematically relevant songs in the public domain. The song you heard was Western Wind an early 16th century song of which we only have a single verse from a 1530 chapbook. It's sung by Mary Boleyn when she meets Queen Catherine of Aragon.